welcome to On the Block with Andrew Gurvich, a podcast about authentic people doing beautiful things. Enjoy the show. to make a show about transformation we you know we saw the planet like many of you have and our culture uh, entering a phase of uncertainty and radical and perhaps violent transformation and we wanted to make a program uh, that laid some groundwork out for a dialogue between folks of various backgrounds uh, to try to find a way to come together to try to find a way to uh, map out routes to one another in this increasingly bifurcated and propagandized world. Um, We are experiencing transfiguration. You know, since we last spoke, uh, my beautiful state of Oregon is on fire. We have uh, insane and historic wildfires across the state and across the region, raging through parts of California, Oregon, Washington, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Idaho, Montana. We've had several category three, four, five, and even six hurricanes uh, moving through Texas, moving moving through Florida. Uh, it's been a real, real wild ride uh, as we've as we've moved into 2017, uh, and I think a lot of us are sensing in ourselves um, that this concept of apocalypse is upon us. Uh, when I was an evangelical pastor for a lot of years, I've spoken about this on the show before. Uh, one of the things the New Testament says is that the the end of the world will arrive like a thief in the night and catch us all off guard. And uh, regardless of the kind of stock you put into those ancient texts. I think that's one that the Bible might have gotten a little bit wrong. It seems like the end of the world is marching down the middle of Main Street with a big ugly band and parade. And we all sit by sort of helpless, wondering what to do about it, if anything. And we've broken uh, more than ever along, along racial lines. We've broken more than ever along gendered lines. We've broken more than ever along socioeconomic lines. And there's, there's not many of us out there trying to, to do the hard work, or maybe there are, but they're not getting enough uh, enough recognition and enough attention uh, to, to, to find ourselves in the other and vice versa. Uh, that's been a project of this show for a long time uh, from the very beginning is to see the brokenness in self and the redemption in other and to use that as a, as a bridge uh, towards our common humanity. Have we been successful about that? I don't know, man. You know, I, re- I really don't know. I, I'm so grateful for the team that helps make this show. I'm so grateful for you, the listeners that have been on this journey with us and for the fabulous guests we've had. Uh, I have some vision for what to do for the program going forward. The wonderful Jenny Forrester, the author of Narrow River, Wide Sky, we've been trying to get her together with her to interview her. I'd love to get uh, the author Lydia Yuknovich back on the show the, um, to talk about her meteoric rise and, and the work that she's doing with corporeal writing. Um, Ijeoma Alu, the author. I've been uh, trying to schedule a series of interviews with uh, with with important, I think, at least um, female and non-binary folks and non-white folks. We've had a slew 
of white men on on the program in the past several months, including today's guest, who I'll get to in a minute. That hasn't been intentional. That hasn't been uh, a subversive response to the Trump administration. It's just been the way it's broken as far as folks we've been able to connect with. I think you're going to enjoy today's guest. I'll get to him in a second. But regarding the show... Uh, you know, producer Mike and I, uh, Celeste Gervich, we're going to we're going to work on it as much as we can. And as often as we can, we still have no funding whatsoever for this program. We never made the show in order to make money or to, to try to extract money. We don't have a subscription service, uh, but it, it, it's increasingly difficult to make to the caliber that we'd like to make the show. And so, again, our future is uncertain. We're trying to sort out what we're going to do as it stands now. Uh, we're going to put a show up as often as we can once we have a guest and a program that we're proud of and that we want to share with you. So subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Go check us out at ontheblockradio.com and uh, just follow the show. And when a new episode arrives, uh, go ahead and check it out when you can. Um, Before we get to today's guest, uh, I used to do these things called um, show dedications. I'd pick a listener and dedicate the show to them. And I'd stopped doing that for a while, and I thought maybe I'd do that again here. I might have already dedicated a program to this individual, so if I have, please forgive me. And if I haven't dedicated one to you yet, and you're a person who's a loyal listener to the show, please understand that I'm getting around to it, and that we value each and every one of you around the country, around the state, here in Oregon, and around the world that listen to the program. But as the program moves into this phase of a kind of uncertain future, I, I think back to the very beginning of the show, and I just mentioned uh, Lydia Yuknovich. I remember, I think she was our second interview. And for so long, I'd wanted to do a program like this where I could you know, put together a show where I got to interview interesting people, talk to them about things that at least I thought were relevant and meaningful in the world, and then sort of wrap it into a, a sound package of music and interviews and other kind of tidbits that would bring you a sense, at least from my filter, of what this person means in the world. And so early on, I was just gripped with fear. I don't know, many of you, if you've listened to me over the years when I would be a guest on Chris Ryan's show, and I would I would be so nervous and just sweating and shaking, and I have all these notes and, uh, you know, trying to prepare myself for this on-air personality and, uh, and what it takes to interact with uh, a person, that, with people that I can't see, the listeners, and not able to read how you're responding to the material, responding to my voice or my ideas. And so I was horrified when we started this program. And I remember half hour or so, I mean, I don't know, a little while into the interview with Lydia Yuknovich, I started to ask her a question and my mind went blank. I mean, completely blank. I had no idea what, what I was saying or where I was. Or I mean, I knew where I was, but I just completely forgot the context of what I was asking. And, and I froze and we were on air uh, recording the show. And I, and I had this moment of panic and started sweating. And I, and I reached for my headphones. Uh, to The only thing that came to me was tear the headphones off, get up and run out of the room, right? And never come back into this space again uh, with the guest or with producer Mike or with anything else in the context of this program. I mean, it's literally the only thing I could think of doing. And so I, I reached, this is while we're taping, I reached for my headphones to start ripping them off. And Lydia must have seen the look on my face. And she sort of just reached over and gently touched my arm as if to say, you got this, uh, you know, don't, don't run away. You can, you can do this. This matters and your voice matters and the show matters. And in just that little gesture, 
helped me to regain my confidence, regain my sense of place and awareness and, and to soldier on, um, maybe soldier is not the right word, but to, 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 to move forward with the program. And uh, I, I think that was a defining moment, not only for me as an individual, but for the program. I think had she not been there, had she not done that, I don't know if the show would have continued. Uh, and Lydia not only was a fabulous guest, still one of my favorite shows on the program, but has been a strong supporter of, of me and my teaching career, of the program, of my wonderful wife, Celeste Gervich, of her writing and her writing career, of many of the guests we've had on the program. Uh, so this episode goes out to, to the amazing author here in the Pacific Northwest, Lydia Yuknovich, and her brand new corporeal writing space that's open in downtown Portland. If you haven't read Lydia's work, if you haven't had the chance to study with her, um, please do. It'll be a life-changing experience and one that I think you will uh, cherish for the rest of your life. All right, on to today's guest. Tom Krattenmaker is a guy that um, I found out about in Dan Merchant's movie, um, uh, Lord Save Us From Your Followers. His newest book, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, Finding Answers in Jesus for Those Who Don't Believe, is something uh, I think many of you would be interested in checking out. Uh, I love Tom and I love his work because he's, he's part of this growing conversation uh, that's taking place around the country and around the world, but he works at Yale University, at Yale Divinity School, and it's seeking to address this, this abiding need that we have for meaning and inspiration and, and what many are calling a post-religious America. Um, I don't know how many of you follow this, but people are in, in many states are fleeing the pews and leaving the sort of standard Judeo-Christian religious affiliation and searching for other ways to connect in the world. And we've talked about this a lot on the show. A lot of people have fled to sort of Eastern traditions, Eastern religions, um, the hippie sort of Burning Man scene and ayahuasca tourism. There's all kinds of things that are occurring. Um, the 2012 Mayan apocalypse craze. There's so many things that are happening that are pushing, that you see Westerners striving um, for a way to reconnect to that, that, that soul aspect that we've lost. We've demystified the world here in the West and we've been suffering for it ever since we have. I've long contended that um, as a professor of religious studies and, and myth and literature that our problem started way back at the beginning of civilization when in the Epic of Gilgamesh, when Gilgamesh slays the the guardian of the cedars of Lebanon, the ancient forest, simply because he wants to, and he ends up using those cedars to build um, monuments to himself back in the city of Uruk. Um, and his companion, Enkidu, even says at the time in one of the manuscripts that this is probably a mistake, that there were guardians around these ancient relics, uh, natural things, old growth forests for a reason, and that uh, to slay the spirits um, would give humans access to this material only to sort of build monuments to our own ego. And boy, howdy, are we sure there now. And as I said in the beginning of this, um, you know, we, we've become a people that really are obsessed with our own way of thinking, our own um, smaller communities, our own approaches, and our own understandings of things. And we've, we've gotten really bad, I think, at, at embracing and understanding the other. And so when you have a guy like Tom 
who is a professor of religious studies at Yale Divinity School and is, and is an atheist. He's not a Christ follower, but he's there in the thick of it, engaged in a conversation about the significance of myth and the significance of story and the significance of finding meaning and inspiration uh, in, in a post-religious America, in a post-fact America, in a post-truth America. What what gives life meaning? What constitutes a, a life well-led? These are things that follow us uh, regardless of our belief system, regardless of our faith tradition. And in many ways, we need them and we need these conversations now more than ever. And so Tom is a guy out on the forefront of doing um, what I think is essential work right now. If any of you follow me on Facebook, you know I use a hashtag, there is no them. And Tom is a guy that manifests that in so many ways. Um, he doesn't follow Jesus. He's not a Christ follower, and yet he is engaged in the work uh, right, at, right at ground zero at Yale Divinity School trying to figure out what is it that makes a life, that, that constitutes meaning in a life. What is it that gives a life meaning? And, and again, constitutes a life well-led. And so we were so happy to have him on the show. I'll say this. We, we did this interview with Tom uh, a few months back, and it, uh, it was probably right around the time of the inauguration. And so we don't talk directly about, uh, for too long, about Trump and the Trump administration, but we do spend a few minutes on it, and it's fascinating to see, um, to think way back to, to January of this year, 2017, and look at um, a lot of the what-ifs that have turned into, um, in many ways, a lot of the things we feared as our country still continues to slide towards authoritarianism and um, uh, giving itself fully over to a mechanism that is uh, dehumanizing and robbing so many of us of our hope and of our ability to see a way forward together. So, so thank you, Tom, for being on the show. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. Uh, we're going to do the best our, that we can to keep bringing you uh, quality shows about transformation, about transfiguration, about that path we are all walking into our own individual and collective becoming. Uh, all right, folks, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're back with us. And uh, we hope you enjoy Tom Kratenmaker. This is your host, Andy Gervich, and we will see you on the other side.
Thank you so much for doing the show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I really appreciate it. So, all right, you ready to jump in? Yeah, I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but let's do it. <laughs> Me either. I got a couple questions, but I uh, tend to freeform it after that. That's good. It's a good influence on me. I'm an over-preparer. <clears throat> I, tend I didn't prepare at all for this. <clears throat> I, I tend to be as well, but I've been busy this week, as it sounds like you've been, so getting ready for the new school term, so... Um, I thought, you know, I have a, a, some background in theology and, and uh, I was a pastor I noticed for a that. While. What do you have? Uh, you went to um, a seminary? Yeah, it was Multnomah Bible Which, College and then Western uh, Conservative Baptist Seminary here in Portland. What, did you, what degree did you get? A master, um, an MDiv or an MAR? MA. Master's, an MA. Ma- master's in exegetical theology. Oh, okay. And uh, I was, Greek, you know, three years, four, what, four years of ancient Greek total between the two schools and three of Hebrew. But then I left the faith, um, you know, I was a pastor, um, I was an associate pastor at a church for a while, um, and walked away from the faith about 10 years ago. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, entirely. Well, I've known about you for a few years. I didn't know you were friends with Dan. Yeah, Dan and I became friends. Actually, what's funny is, um, you know, this is a sort of unofficial, This uh, what, what we've done here, folks, is a soft intro. <laughs> the show's begun, and we haven't actually begun the show, and that's fine, because I wanted to talk about a little bit of this, but... Um, when I, when I walked away from the church, uh, what started with me was, uh, on social issues, right? The church was gearing up to fight, uh, same sex marriage, uh, to fight, um, in Oregon, physician assisted suicide, um, women's reproductive <laughs> care. Um, yep. and I would, I would pray about these things and I would just come down on the other side of them. I would come away and go, you know, I feel like we should support, 
you know, physician assisted suicide and all of my colleagues were going, no, 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 you know, you're totally wrong. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Uh, and I would come back and go, I, I, f- I think this way about immigration. Oh, no, 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 no. And I thought, boy, I'm in the wrong church. Um, and so that started a, a split with me that led to a theological split ultimately as well, where I just kind of shook the whole thing. Um, and it was right when I walked away from the church was right when the, the new atheists emerged or, you know, the, uh, you know, this is Marr and uh, Richard Dawkins and, and those guys. And, uh, and of course the, none, none of it was new. The new atheism wasn't new at all. It was the same arguments people have been making. I mean, since there's been Christianity, um, but I fell yep. into it. I, you know, I saw Bill Maher's movie at the time and loved it. Um, and then I rented Dan's movie thinking it was going to be another movie that was taking a hit at Christians because of the title. <coughs> because, of, you know, Lord save us from your followers. So you imagine my disappointment. <laughs> you disappoint. Yeah, when I popped that thing in the DVD player and his movie came on. But I loved it so much and actually returned to it uh, a couple of years later and use it in a, in a writing, uh, an argument analysis class. And I show both um, Bill Maher's movie and Dan Merchant's film, Lord Save Us From Your Followers, and have the students write argument analysis papers on it because I find it really useful stuff, especially the stuff where he's interviewing you um, about some of the work you do. So I've come back to it in terms of I teach mythology and religion at the school. I'm, I write about it a lot. I'm really interested in Paleolithic religion. Um, I see, we're going to get to you, right? We haven't really started the show yet, but that's all right. Um, I, you know, I see religions as these algorithms or scripts to help people access and, and engage symbolic consciousness to help foster, uh, um, you know, communal bonds. And so I, I, mm-hmm. I dig what you're doing. I think that the, these, these chasms that are built between people of faith and, and the, the unfaithful and, how religious figures, especially Jesus, are used in political movements is deplorable and, and uh, anemic. But we'll let we'll get to that with you in a minute. But that's that's my take on all this. <laughs> how hey, are, Andrew, how's do you have your a copy of Do you have a copy of the Secular Jesus book? I do not yet. Okay, but, but it going, sounds like you're a little bit familiar with the content and the general premise. Yes, absolutely. And I do know your other two books. And I just became aware of Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower when I started preparing to chat with you. So I will have it shortly and read it and be talking about it with with guests coming up because it seems like it's right up my alley. Yeah, I hope so. So you ready to jump in? I'm ready to jump in. All right, let's do it. <clears throat> All right, folks, welcome to the program. This is your host, Andy Gervich. Our guest this week is author Tom Krattenmaker. Tom is an award-winning author and USA Today contributing columnist specializing in religion and public life. And he's the communications director at Yale Divinity School as well. His books and articles have been honored by the American Academy of Religion, Religion News Writers Association, Forward Reviews, and others. Krattenmaker has spoken at numerous conferences and colleges around the country and has appeared in media outlets including PBS, Fox News, National Public Radio, ESPN, and the New York Times. <coughs> Excuse me, can't wait to ask you about that ESPN stuff. Uh, an award-winning USA Today columnist, Krattenmaker makes the case for how a Jesus freed from religion and politics meets the need for meaning and purpose in secular America. Tom Krattenmaker is a part of a growing conversation centered at Yale University that acknowledges and seeks to address the abiding need for meaning and inspiration in post-religious America. What they ask gives, gives a life meaning. What constitutes a life well-led? In his new book, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, Krattenmaker shares his surprising conclusion about where input and inspiration might be best found in the figure of Jesus. And Jesus, not only as a good example and teacher, but Jesus as the primary guide for one's life. 
drawing on sociological research, personal experience, and insights from 15 years of studying and writing on religion in American public life. Krattenmaker shows that in Jesus, non-religious people like himself can find a unique and compelling wisdom on how to honor the humanity in ourselves and others, how to build more peaceful lives, how generosity can help people in communities create more abundance, how to break free from self-defeating behaviors, and how to tip the scales towards justice. Sounds like a good program. In a time good when more, program. yeah, right. In a time when more people than ever are identifying as atheist or agnostic, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower is groundbreaking and compelling work that rediscovers Jesus and our own best selves for the world today. Tom Crattenmaker, welcome to the show, sir. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, we are so glad to have you. Like I said, I first became aware of your work um, in Dan Merchant's movie, um, uh, 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 Lord Save Us From Your Followers. So how did you meet Dan? How did you end up talking with him and, and working on that project with him? It, it was because of the movie. Hmm, okay. And um, I know that um, when you first heard about the movie, you thought it was just going to be an attack on right-wing Christians. Yeah. I thought the same thing. <laughs> so back when he... Um, first discovered me he had seen a usa today piece Mm -hmm. that i'd written and this was when i was pretty new at writing columns for usa today i think the headline was something like misplaying the god card in politics Mm. back then i was writing a lot about the um abuses and excesses of the christian right Mm. and apparently while he was on a flight dan had seen somebody reading that article and he uh, tracked me down after that and we did a couple interviews for the movie and then we became friends and uh, he's one of the people I miss back in Portland. You know, I left two years ago to take this job at Yale, and uh, Dan is one of the friends I had to leave behind. You made him, I, I think uh, you were one of the people, at least in the film, it looks like you were one of the folks that made him aware of, like, the Night Strike program here in Portland. Is that correct? Actually, he made me aware. Oh, okay. Fascinating. He turned me onto it. He gave me a tip, and I ended up uh, writing a column about it, and then we talked about it on camera. Well, that's fascinating. For for our listeners that don't know that film, they should really check it out. There's some moving sections in it, like when Dan sets up a, a confession booth at Pride Parade here in Portland, but goes there to not hear confessions from LBGTQ folks, but to actually confess to them about his own. I apathy. agree. That was a yeah. I agree. Ahead. That was a very moving scene, and to um, witness the uh, words and uh, emotional responses of the people Dan was talking with. That's what was so moving. Uh, these people who had um, come to talk to Dan that way and hear his confession, mm-hmm. you know, these gay people who had been abused right. by so many Christians, they were so surprised and moved. It really made for a compelling scene. And there's some. Uh, there's another sequence in the film where he strikes up a friendship with a, a member of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence in San Francisco, uh, someone by the name of Sister Mary Timothy, who uh, is, an, uh, again, a gay man who had suffered a lot of abuse and contracted AIDS at a very young age and was in San Francisco protesting uh, a Christian group that was there to protest gay marriage on the steps of City Hall. And Dan ended up befriending this person and really getting invested in their life. And so, what? again, this isn't a conversation about Dan. It's about your work. But it's a good bridge into the stuff you do because what I loved about what he's doing and then what I see you doing, and I think it's really powerful from coming from you because Dan is a, is a believer. And so there's always this notion of, you know, maybe someone is just trying to put the best foot forward of their own tradition as a kind of selling point. But tell us about the work you're doing, right, to address meaning in a, in a post-religious America. And maybe first off, tell us for our listeners that don't know what, what that means. What, what, what would you define as a post-religious America? The context is so important Absolutely. as we look at um, 
what's going on with um, the non-religious. It used to be not such an important point because mm-hmm. there were so few non-religious people. Mm. And um, Christians were dominant. If you weren't Christian, you were probably Jewish. And right. it was really, really um, a fringe segment of the population, people who are atheists. Right. So what was going on in atheist America probably didn't matter all that much. But you know what? It matters a lot now. Yeah. Because the non-religious have grown to the point where we are um, about 25% of the population. Wow. And the figure is even higher among younger adult Americans, mm-hmm. which means that the overall percentage is going to continue to go up and up and up. And this has not been the case at any time in recent history. So in my book, I describe it as sort of um, an experiment. What happens now? What's going to happen in this huge space in our culture where religion is receding? Because religion has played a big role in our culture. And so um, I see it as this um, ongoing, iterative effort, this experiment Mm. for the non-religious to find new ways of developing finding and providing community, inspiration, the impetus for being good and doing good, for making something out of our lives. And um, I think that's an important question. There are many sources people can turn to. For me, though, as I reflect on this and I look at what's uh, messed up about our culture today Mm -hmm. and what could be um, really useful correctives, I keep returning over and over again to the example set by the figure of Jesus in the New Testament. It's kind of um, a shocking thing for some people to hear because they're not used to hearing Jesus spoken about in positive terms in these secular venues where I move. Yeah. But I also think it's a really powerful thing. Yeah, go ahead. That's what's kind of um, good about it, too. And after all, this is um, a day and age of fluid and hybrid religious identities, people combining different things. Mm. So from that standpoint, I'm in sync with um, what's going on. And I have to say, too, that for many years, I've heard people say that you know, I'm not really a Christian, but I really dig what Jesus was about. And if only they were more like Jesus, I'd be on board. And since the book has come out, I've had lots of people say to me that, hey, that's really what I am. You know, I'm with you on that, or I totally get where you're coming from. So um, I don't think I'm saying anything that's brand new. Maybe some of my language is new. But I think that this idea has been out there percolating a little bit below the surface, sort of unofficially, and I'm just trying to make it more available and more accessible to people now. Well, I think it's fascinating. And I want to ask you a couple more questions about the, this new book and then maybe some of your earlier work as well. But uh, in your in your intro, I mentioned that you're, you're working with a group of people at Yale looking at this idea of this abiding need for meaning and inspiration. Um, what gives a life meaning? What constitutes a life well-led? And what's really interesting is that, and I can speak from personal experience uh, in my own life and then as a pastor and then now as a teacher, um, uh, of, of these things and also just writing and literature and stuff that um, when somebody engages a, a faith tradition or whether they don't engage it or whether they do for a while then walk away from it um, our, our need as people to find um, to find these these systems or find these connect these connections that give our life a coherence and give it meaning and give us a kind of uh, a, a narrative with momentum towards something um, mm. approaching connectivity with the cosmos, that need doesn't go away, whether we're religious people or not. And so I think it's fascinating. Would you agree with that? I think it's interesting that even if more people are, are atheist or agnostic, our, our, the awe and, and sense of gratitude that we feel when we look up at the night sky doesn't go away regardless of how we define ourselves. And so the fact that you're 
exploring for how we can connect to that and actually build a life around it, even if we're not a part of these faith traditions, is huge. I'm involved in something called the Yale Humanist Community, mm-hmm. which is more or less the humanist uh, chaplaincy. Okay at Yale and in the surrounding community. We also serve the community of Greater New Haven. And I'm on the board. I attend pretty much all the stuff that we put on. And that's what's going on. And I see it as being part of a really important shift that is happening in secular America. Hmm. When you and I were talking earlier, you mentioned the new atheists. Yeah. You know, Dawkins, Hitchens, Sam Harris, and so forth. it's been over 10 years since that phenomenon happened. Wow, that's right. And as I've been um, saying in my talks and in some articles I've been writing, in fact, I have a big essay about this coming out in The Humanist in, um, in a few weeks. Mm. But something very different now is happening in this secular space. Yeah. I think there's a pivot away from what the new atheists were about, i.e., what's ro- wrong with religion, right. uh, criticizing religion, belittling religion, mm-hmm. away from that and toward, well, so as secular people, what are we about? Right. We have this um, unofficial motto at the Yale Humanist Community, Andrew, and it says, there's more to being non-religious than what you don't believe, Yeah. which I think is a pretty good saying. And so that begs the question, what do we believe what are we about? How are we going to find meaning? How are we going to contribute to our communities? Um, I like the phrase you use. How are we going to build momentum yeah. towards something approaching transcendence, if you will? And so this is a really important phenomenon happening. I feel actually kind of excited to be um, part of um, an organization that is on the front edge of this new thing that's hap- happening in, in secular culture. You know where uh, I think it's, it's overdue and it's high time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I've I've described uh, to people before that for me, my atheist experience coming out of the pastorate um, was exactly what you were talking about. And this doesn't describe the experience of many atheists, but just for me, um, I, I describe it as shaking a fit my fist at an empty sky. Aha! Uh-huh. And and that and you can only do that for so long, right? You can only be mad at nothing for so long before you have to to embrace the void or fill it with something right besides you know yeah. alcohol and netflix or something right but <laughs> but speaking of netflix you know and I what that, you know the shaking <laughs> the fist does play a purpose it has a role go ahead no and even though i was critical of the new atheists at the time i'm willing to um say in retrospect that maybe they played a role an important and necessary role they served a purpose the I way i describe so. that is they're sort of like the shock troops who go into hostile territory and with their aggressive ways, they clear out a space. They establish oh, things. And what they've done, as I see it, is that they've cleared out a space for non-religious people of milder temperament to come in and do their thing in a different way. Yes. That's one way of uh, seeing what's been happening in uh, the roughly 10 years or more since this series of um, anti-religion manifestos came out. And, you know, your book really presages of something I'm seeing in uh, in entertainment now. If you look at what's going on, I mentioned Netflix a second ago. Um, you know, these shows, whether it's Stranger Things or the OA or Black Mirror, there's a whole bunch of them that are bringing in spiritual themes into the programming, but, but not traditional spiritual themes, or at least not in the traditional sense. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of that in, in sort of current programming. Well, that would be indicative of um, what I would say is the fact that, you know, the quest continues. The search Mm. is still on. Um, Sadly, I would say um, religion as we know it is proving to be less able to address this, less robust as a means of addressing this. And I do say this with some regret. You know, I do work at a 
Christian Divinity School here at Yale. And I think that there's a lot that's good about this place and a lot that's good about Christianity. So when I talk about um, the decline of conventional religion in America, it's not something that I necessarily celebrate. Right. But it is what it is. Mm -hmm. And it is a fact that in this very different cultural moment that we're having, uh, conventional religion seems to be less able to serve as this vehicle through which people can find these things. A lot of people still can find it through churches, but uh, more and more people can't. Hmm. But um, what hasn't changed, I would say, is the ongoing search for meaning. And all sorts of experiments are happening. How can people find it without churches? Yeah. Or how can churches change to provide it? And so um, that does seem to be um, – I, I hate to say anything grandiose or make any overly sweeping claims, but hmm. it seems to be a universal, timeless part of the human experience. And it certainly isn't going away now, even though we have more and more non-religious people in the Western world. Can you give us an example? So you talk about in this book how uh, how secularists can look to Jesus for um, for insights into into a lot of things, into how to live their lives, how to break addictions, how to become you know stronger in their relationships. And so, how did you arrive at that at, at those kinds of things in this text? It was a combination of um, looking at what is broken in our culture today, mm -hmm. which is um, something I've been doing now for over um, for over ten years as a writer on religion in public life in America, spending a lot of time looking at what's messed up about our politics, uh, thinking about the things about um, our life today that make me um, either disillusioned or frustrated or angry or depressed. Mm -hmm. And then juxtaposing all these things, all this diagnosing I've been doing with um, the example of Jesus and the stories of Jesus in the New Testament. And I started to see that it was amazing the degree to which they um, addressed all the stuff we go through now. Give us an example. And how they were such a powerful corrective and how um, – well, one over – you asked for an example, sure. and I'll, an example and I'll get to one. But oh, sure. yeah, there's a consistent theme yeah. that I found and that is that a lot of the things that are happening today at the root of the problem is that people are being dehumanized and we're going through experiences, yeah. many of us that are dehumanizing. And I saw that what Jesus is doing over and over again is sort of rehumanizing people who have been dehumanized and rehumanizing situations that are dehumanizing. Uh, and I even refer to him in the book at one point as the great humanizer. Wow. Because over and over again, he was seeing the humanity in people in whom humanity was most difficult to see. Like even the biggest assholes yeah. and people we hated the most, mm -hmm. he could see the humanity in them. Right. I mean, to kind of a ridiculous degree. But something about that got in my head, and it's, um, it's inspiring and challenging at the same time. And I was really sort of caught up in the momentous importance of that and the relevance of that to so much that's going on today. So the book is basically a series of examples. Mm. In between the um, intro and the reflections at the end, I have these chapters that look at uh, problems that we have today, both as individuals and as a society, whether it's our racism or the sexual explo exploitation that we engage in, or our um, addiction to over-incarceration, or whether it's our personal and social anxiety. And I look at all these things that are happening, and then I um, map onto that what you might call the way of Jesus or the wisdom of Jesus, hmm. and sort of um, show how the Jesus way can be transformative when we look at the things that are problematic about our lives today. 
And so to drill down more deeply in one of them, which one would you really want to talk about, Andrew? Would it be <laughs> racism or anxiety or sexism <clears throat> or violence? Because there are chapters on all of them. Sure. How about and, uh, go ahead? Yeah, pick one. How about how about uh, anxiety? Okay, that's a good one because that's what that's when I address both um, on a personal level, and when I look at social anxiety. Yeah, and I, it's really good too because if you look at the election that just happened mm -hmm. and this whole Trump phenomenon, I would posit that anxiety was a major driver. That's why I picked in it, what by was the way. Not, yeah. an underlying factor. What's that? That's why I picked that example because I think it's something a lot of people are, are, are experiencing both before in the lead up to and after the election on, on both sides of, of the equation. So that, that's why yeah, I Yeah, and I've it. had sort of a lifelong off and on struggle with, um, with my own anxiety. Even when I was a kid, I'd get mm. nervous about things and always feeling like, like the other foot's going to drop. Or how does that cliche go? The other shoe is going to drop. You look like a pretty calm dude from your pictures, and so you. Well, it man, I'm great at. <laughs> <laughs> I'm great at deceiving, right? <laughs> and um. So go ahead. Yeah, we anxiety. are anxious. We are anxious and driven by anxiety's um, cousin, which is fear. Mm -hmm. We are never going to be at our best. We're going to do dumb things and yeah. mean things, Selfish hurtful things. things. Yeah. We're going to hurt ourselves and others. Um. We're going to fall into a pattern of scarcity yeah. where we think there's not enough, and that's going to drive our selfishness. It's going to curb any capacity we might have for generosity. So it's very, very problematic. I think there's a very close relationship between these things, fear and anxiety yeah. and, um, and um, stinginess. Right. And I get into all of that particular chapter. And so then you um, hold that in your mind, and you think about the stuff that Jesus said and did in the Bible. Hmm. Think about what he said in uh, the Sermon on the Mount yeah. about the, the lilies in the field and the birds in the air. And um, yeah. the wisdom and the beauty in um, ex just experiencing what's good about the moment and not obsessing about what's going to happen the next day or the next week. Now, mind you, if people go overboard with that, they're going to do some really dumb and bad things. Right, right. I try to differentiate in the chapter – um, I try to make a, the differentiation between worry on one hand and maybe productive thinking on the other hand. Right, right. I mean, obviously, you do need to plan for things, but worry is so unproductive. Mm, smart. It's, um, it's so debilitating. It's so pointless. And I really think that Jesus was trying to get at that. Yeah. There are examples over and over again of Jesus sort of stealing away from the tumult to meditate, pray in his case, because let's face it, he was a very religious person. Yeah. There are stories um, over and over again where the disciples are freaking out yeah. about a situation just like me, <laughs> and Jesus is totally calm, and yeah. he almost chides them for being so, um, so for being so anxious and hyped up. He's sort of like, chill, dudes. It's going to be okay. Right, right. And um, I actually tried to do my own secular exegesis of the parable of the loaves and fishes to get mm. at this. You can probably picture the, uh, the story in your mind, and hopefully the listeners can. You know, they have the situation going on that is exactly the kind of thing that stresses me out. Yeah, yeah. There's this big crowd that's gathered. Jesus seems to be intimating that somehow they're going to have to, like, come up with a way to feed them all. Mm -hmm. Yet no planning had taken place for this. A couple of the disciples are like, how in the hell are we going to feed all these people? Right. <laughs> and I know oh, I hate it when I'm in situations where... I'm um, seemingly forced to come up with some like solution to a problem I didn't create. There seem to be no solutions. Like, 
why is it on me to come up with a solution to this? Mm, right. That seems to be what disciples are doing. So I could really relate. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Disciples are saying, Jesus is basically like, calm down. We'll come up with something. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is like and that Bible they did happened. in the 70s. Yeah. And then something happens. So when they did their official inventory about the food that they had, they had almost none. You know, there was this kid who had a little bit of bread and some fish. And then um, for religious people, as you know, the essence of the story is that there's a miracle. A miracle and Jesus right. suddenly produces food enough to feed all these 5,000 people. And still there are leftovers. Right. And that's fine. You know, I'm not one who discounts. Um, I don't believe in miracles myself, but I know intelligent wise people who do, and I don't disparage them right, for that. The point that. of the conversation is not to say there's no miracles, right? But right. there is always a secular way of looking at these things, too, yeah. and I spend a lot of time in the, looking at it. And so my take on it is that something happens to spark generosity. Mm. And, okay, so officially there was almost no food. There was only this kid with the fish and the bread. But I would say that a lot of other people had food. And they were kind of holding out. Hmm. They had it stashed somewhere, maybe on their uh, in their cloak, or somewhere on the perimeter. Uh, when they were asked if they were asked, they said, "Oh, I don't have anything." And then suddenly something happened, and the dynamic shifted from scarcity, i.e., hoarding, i.e., stinginess, yeah. to abundance. And when there's a feeling of abundance, then suddenly we are our best selves, and yeah. we share. And we can think with wisdom instead of with some kind of fear-based nonsense. And so my take on it is that Jesus inspired them to be generous and to operate out of abundance. And suddenly, lo and behold, there's enough for everybody and even a whole bunch of leftovers. And I think that really maps on to what's happened in our lives when we tap into abundance and generosity and a feeling of well-being and um, gratitude and appreciation Mm -hmm. for have rather than like always being stingy and musing about how little we have. And these are things that I struggle with. Yeah. And so to me, it's um, really striking how applicable the Jesus example is here and how transformative it can be if we can somehow implement it in our lives individually and collectively. That's, that's really powerful. And it reminds me of, a, of, a, of two parables I, I heard, um, one very short that said, uh, the only problem with equality is we tend to only desire it with those above us, right? And that, wow. Yeah, and that feeds that notion of greed or stinginess or always focusing on scarcity, like what I don't have versus what I exactly. do and what I have to share. Uh, and there's another story that I'm sure you've heard. It's a, it's a parable of, of someone dying and being, you know, and this is, you know, it's one of those, you die and St. Peter takes you to the yada yada kind of things. And so the theology on this is kind of suspect, but uh, roll with it for a second. Um, he takes a guy and he opens a door and he says, this is hell. And it's a bunch of people sitting around a table and there's all kinds of delicious food on the table. Um, but they're all kind of at the table and they all have forks that are like four feet long that are kind of that are kind of like uh like you know what however like fused to their hands right and so they they when they pick the food up they're not able to turn it and get it in their own mouths and so the people are starving yeah they're all starving even though they're sitting at a table filled with all this delicious food um and so then uh he says do you want to see heaven and the guy says sure and he takes them to another room and he opens it and it's the same room same table same, same food, forks, same forks, but the people are just feeding each other across the table, and everyone's eating oh, that and having awesome. a wonderful time. And it's such an illustration of exactly what you're talking about. I think it's really beautiful. 
It really is. And it's such a theme of my, I'm thinking about this and of my book too, over and over again, I end up um, arriving at um, generosity and yeah. seeing the humanity in others and extending ourselves to others. This is not some big new insight. I mean, people have known this forever, but it's so hard mm. to get there and stay there. I really and think- it continues to be part of the um, timeless wisdom. And Jesus was a great exemplar of this. And I think we really need that now. I think I really need that. You know, one of the, some of the work I do is in Neolithic and Paleolithic religion, and I, I really do think that when we lived in smaller, you know, when, when people lived in units of 100, 125 people and we were hunter-gatherers, um, two things were different. One is you pretty much knew everybody that you lived with, right? You had mm. generational relationships with the people you were around, and everyone knew each other's names and, and kind of grew up together. Um, and secondly... There wasn't a lot of private property because people lived in these small bands of hunter-gatherers. And so everything was sort of shared equally for the most part. Not in every situation, but for the most part. Um, Uh And so as that changed with the beginning of civilization, two things changed, right? We start to have the, um, with with hunter-gatherer societies moving into agricultural societies, we have the beginning of cultures who have excess for the first time. And that brings wealth. And with wealth, that brings class. And then with a population explosion, suddenly you're living in a city that has 50,000, 100,000, 7 million people, and now everyone doesn't know one another. And also Mm. a competition for resources and ownership of resources becomes a really kind of brutal thing that we all, you know, I mean, the world wars have been fought over these very kinds of things. And so religions then focus their attention on how do we get people to develop these empathy scripts? How do we remind people of their inherent connectivity to one another? And and I really think the way you're approaching these texts really emphasizes that. Well, Jesus was like a whole breakthrough, mm. it seems to me. And I've um, read the um, observations of um, other philosophers and experts on morality who have said this about him too, both religious and non-religious writers, his um, willingness to go way beyond just um, being kind and generous with our immediate communities or our tribes and taking it to a much more universal, I mean, to a totally universal direction and seeing the humanity in everybody, even people who are part of the wrong group or the wrong religion, whatever wrong affiliation they had. There's a chapter that I... um, that I use to address this at the very beginning of the book, which I call bad company, Hmm. you know, Jesus hanging out with and identifying with the wrong people, right? Which was probably pretty shocking to a lot of people them and probably got a lot of people angry at him. Um, if he was transgressing, this was one of the major ways that he did it, but it was also really profound. And so, um, beneficial. And that too is something we still need 2000 years later. Hmm. I mean, look at the talk we have now in America about, whether uh, Muslims should be stopped from coming into the United States. Right, right. And we have divided up into these sort of tribes that pretty much hate each other. So that's part of the um, sort of endless struggle that we have as human beings. A question I have for you, and I'll maybe ask you one more question and then we'll go to break and come back. And I want to ask you um, about some of the other work you've done as well. Uh, but maybe maybe two more questions before we go to break. Um, it seems like uh, you're mostly pulling uh, from the Gospels when you're talking about the life and work and words of Jesus, right? So do you not um, use like the epistles and, and, and the revelation and sort of the other work uh, in the New Testament? Do you not pull from that stuff? Is it mostly the Gospels that you're working from? 
a couple times from um, Paul, but it's mostly from um, the Gospels, and mm-hmm. it's a lot of it is from the um, Sermon on the Mount. To be honest, yeah, the uh, the Jesus examples and teachings I pull out. I'm not doing anything very surprising there. Yeah. It's pretty much the stuff that Jesus is best known for. Right. So no breakthroughs there. This <laughs> is, you know, common material. But I do have my um, my own interpretation of how it applies to what we go through now, and obviously my own, my own secular take on it. So hopefully that's where there's sort of a new contribution and and some new thinking, and probably some new language for talking about Jesus in yeah. a way that makes him available and understandable and accessible to non-religious people today. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. If we want to have a conversation, which is this program isn't about, about denominations or about Christian theology or, or um, you know, the creeds or the canon or, or Pauline theology, there's a lot to um, the conversation of what does or does not make someone a Christ follower in terms of how that's hashed out over time. But when you look to the Gospels, especially in, in the the example there of the narrative character, um, his interactions with people are pretty simple and pretty straightforward and, and tend to not come with a lot of that complexity and tend to really be about these kinds of direct and, as you said before, humanizing kinds of or, or rehumanizing things. I wonder, um, lastly, before we go to break, uh, in your work, do you engage other religious figures and traditions besides Jesus and Christianity? And if not, why, why just these? A little area? bit. A little bit. I'm not an exclusivist, and I believe that we can find wisdom and inspiration from um, many figures in the pantheon. Sure. And I cite a few of them um, in one in the chapter about um, about violence. I talk um, at some length about Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who is um, a very um, successful user of nonviolence sure. during the civil rights movement. So that was a great example. And um, I touch on Gandhi and some other figures. And in the conversations that I've been having since the book, you know, I've had people tell me that, yeah, I get what you're saying, Tom. Jesus is at number one for me. I'm, I get more out of um, the Buddha. And I'm thinking, great. If people are finding um, great sources of um, inspiration and insight and ethical formation, mm. I say, go for it. Right. For me, Jesus is definitely the, um, the most exciting figure to engage with. And um, I would say that of all the figures out there, Jesus is the best or one of the best. But I'm never going to say that it's only Jesus or you're lost. Because yeah, as I say, I'm not an exclusivist. And um, I'm happy if anybody is uh, finding good stuff from whatever figure. Yeah, I've never encountered your work as an exclusivist. I guess if anything, I would see you as a specialist uh, in this area, right? That you just tended to focus on this because you find a lot of stuff to do work on there. You know what I mean? You haven't run out of things to say and talk about in research in this area. So you haven't felt the need to move on to the other ones yet. And, and I acknowledge that my um, focusing on Jesus here in my own ethical life and in my writing probably has something to do with the fact that I grew up in the United States of America. Yeah, exactly. In a certain era when, you know, I'm in my mid fifties now. So when I was growing up, it was much more of a Christian country. Right. And so you were pretty much necessarily and inevitably going to be exposed to um, a lot of Jesus stuff. So there was a lot of familiarity. And I think and that's even though the, the church stuff never really stuck with me, the Jesus stuff really stayed with me, at least in the back of my mind for a long time, and then started moving from the back toward the front of my mind. Fascinating. And I was just going to say that too. The second thing is in this culture, when dealing with the Jesus story and the character of Jesus, you're really um, dealing with an accessible figure and symbol, even for po- folks who aren't religious because they've been so steeped in it through American culture. So there's, there's the relevance there as well. 
All right, well, let's go to break, and then I want to ask you a couple more questions about Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower and then about your previous book, because that's the book that I'm more familiar with, The Evangelicals You Don't Know. All right, we'll do it. We're great, folks. You're listening to On the Block Radio. Our guest is Tom Krattenmaker, and we will be back right after these words. Slava Vakarchuk is Ukraine's biggest rock star. He's the front man of the popular band Okin Elzi. Raised in the Orthodox tradition, the self-described Christian jumped onto the stage as a teenager. And all these years later, Vakarchuk has become an institution. Not only because of his music, but his social and cultural activism. These days, his surroundings are a bit quieter on the campus of Yale University, where he's a world fellow taking classes at the Divinity School. Yes, a rock star in seminary. I'm just an inquisitive person, you know. I like studying, I like learning new things, and I never had anything uh, from, like, you know, from some theologians or taking, you know, classes on theology or or things like that. So I was very curious and I'm very happy to be here. And it seems Vakarchuk isn't the only one happy to be here. He's part of a growing trend at divinity schools across the country, where students are enrolling in similar programs simply to study theology with no intention of ever becoming ordained as clergy. You know, um, when you go to Yale University or to the other university to study history, it's not because you want to become a historian or a teacher of history school. Sometimes you want to know history because knowing history enriches you, uh, broadens you up your mind, uh, horizons, and you know, makes you a wiser person. Uh, the same thing with uh, theology. And this desire to broaden the mind is also attracting other students from faraway places with surprising belief systems. One of the students, for instance, uh, told us that uh, she had the need to think about those things. She herself is an atheist from, uh, from India. So she's an atheist from India? Who came as a Yale student and who took, uh, took our class. We welcome uh, atheists, we welcome uh, theists, we welcome religious people who aren't theists. Everybody's welcome. Indeed, we try to have a very diverse group of folks. But what he, she didn't know, didn't see, uh, or didn't experience before, is that she would have a, a permission to think in academic terms <laughs> about the great question of life. For her, that was a revelation. Professor Miroslav Wolf, a prominent theologian and head of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, is teaching several courses at Yale that give students permission to think in an academic environment about the great questions of life. Christ and the good life and a life worth living are drawing students with diverse interests that all have similar intentions. What motivated these uh, uh, courses is a sense that in um, culture today, uh, we tend to spend a lot of time thinking about how to see, succeed 
in one or the other endeavor that we undertake. But we tend to spend very little time thinking about how do I succeed as a human being. Teaching how to succeed as a human being also includes exploring historical, philosophical, and sociological lessons. The course has deepened student Taylor Bolton's understanding of life. I also believe that nothing is, is completely academic, nothing is completely social, um, and there's a spiritual component, I think, to everything. And the spiritual component seems to be an element students are seeking to explore in a deeper way. The study of religion offers a different but welcomed foundation. It's not that I need to be converted or not that I need to get a job after that. Uh, it's something that, you know, I want to go deeper. This is it. Whether it's a rock star or a business major, the elements of spirituality are being studied as the basis for living a good life. At Harvard University, Gregory Epstein, who is the humanist chaplain and describes himself as an agnostic and atheist, figured out a long time ago that there was more to religion than religion. He's been recruiting others, including non-believers, to the divinity school. A lot of what religion is about on the day-to-day -day level for people is exploring what's most meaningful to people, exploring community, and figuring out how to come together with a community to make the world a better place. And that was the topic that I wanted to spend the rest of my life learning about. And coming together is exactly what Harvard Divinity School student Christopher Raish is hoping to achieve. He founded a group called White People Against Racism to fight social injustice. Although he describes himself as, quote, not very theistic, he uses the fundamentals of religion to try to change some of the attitudes that perpetuate racism. The ways that religions have, cult have developed practices and liturgies and, and methods for cultivating the heart, for opening us up to the, the curious quality of being here as a human and how to live that beautifully, how to live that deeply, um, that is just... Uh, to me, the, the real treasure, I'm just seeing and appreciating how that is lived so deeply by so many different people of different faiths. Raish's group meets at the Humanist Hub, an off-campus place Epstein created to bring people together to connect with others who are interested in making the world a better place. They meet on Sundays, they read poems, sing songs, and listen to guest speakers. In fact, it even feels a little like, well, church but it isn't. I'm finding more and more that non-religious people are looking around and saying, wait a second, I'm not religious, but I do miss the idea of community that I would get if I were religious, and I wish I could find some kind of non-religious alternative to that kind of community. As Raish sees it, the Humanist Hub is one compelling answer. It's, uh, it's all aiming toward how to be a, a more intimate participant in civic life and in, in, in relationship with the world, um, but doing it through economics, science, art, whatever it might be. According to the Pew Research Center, the number of people who consider themselves to be religiously unaffiliated, including atheists and agnostics, is on the rise, about a fifth of the U.S. population. Some are turned off by too much politics and too many rules in organized religion. Others say faith and facts don't add up. But those numbers don't mean non-believers can't find value in religion, its traditions, 
and even the teachings of Jesus. Use every opportunity to talk about it. This is a topic author Tom Crottenmaker explores in his new book, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. I've been sensing and hearing from other people who are not part of organized religion anymore, but who really admire Jesus. They're not quite sure if Jesus is available to them. They're not quite sure if it's legit for them to engage with Jesus as a non-religious person. So I wanted to um, make Jesus available to people like that, including me. I wanted to articulate what it is about Jesus that appeals to me and makes me inspired by Jesus. And what exactly does Jesus offer non-believers besides salvation? There's ethical instruction, there's inspiration, there are these very rich stories that help us reorient the way we see the world and the way we live our lives. It's amazing that these stories from 2,000 years ago are so salient and helpful today. Those sentiments are echoed by Wolf back in the classroom at Yale. And while all views are welcomed and respected, he does not waver on his own beliefs. From the get-go in the class, it's clear that I am a Christian. I believe that Christian faith is true. I would be happy if a person would embrace this, but my goal is not to evangelize them, to turn them into Christians. My goal is, as a, as a teacher is to referee their own search where they take seriously the question of truth. And students like Vakarchuk, curious about theology, and other believers seeking to enrich their lives as they launch into secular careers, say Divinity School will have a lasting influence. For Religion and Ethics Newsweekly, I'm Dan Lothian in Boston. Hello, here we go. Hello, this is Dr. Stanley Krippner, and I am on the Block Radio. Oh, pardon me, let's do that over. Hello, this is Dr. Stanley Krippner, and you are listening to On the Block Radio. Radio. Back to the program, folks. This is your host, Andy Gerbich. We're speaking with Tom Crackmaker. And when we left, uh, we were talking about your newest book, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. And I guess I wonder, um, you mentioned working uh, at a Christian institution and, you know, having taken the book around now for a little bit, I wonder, um, how is the book being received? And uh, is there a difference in how, you know, your fellow secular sort of uh, sojourners receive the book and maybe how religious people or Christians have received the book? Yeah, it's been fascinating. Generally, people are uh, pretty positive about it, hmm. and um, I've had a lot of um, encouragement and um, compliments, uh, appreciation. As I mentioned earlier, people have said to me, yeah, I totally um, relate to what you're saying. I've thought of myself that way, or I think of myself that way. Um, then there are Christians who are just happy that people are seeing something awesome in Jesus like they do. Mm-hmm. And so they take heart in that and find that interesting, and they find it helpful that I have some of this new language for talking about Jesus in ways that are helpful and can make him uh, understandable and accessible to wider groups of people. Then when you look at the um, more militant and adamant precincts in um, atheism and secularism, there's been some pushback there. Some people just have a hard time extricating Jesus from religion. Hmm. And they've heard Jesus invoked so many times in contexts 
that they find off-putting that Jesus is sort of radioactive to them. No matter what. So they think, yeah, so they think what I'm doing is kind of wrong or crazy and they think it'll end up promoting Christianity. Keep so the door sort of cracked like, open for all of this hateful stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah so they're yeah. sort of doing the Heisman on, on me on, me <laughs> in the book um, and maybe even suspecting that I'm not truly secular. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that you're some kind of Christian mole, right? Yeah. Um, you look pretty clean cut, man. Part, so yeah, <laughs> when, they, when they see what I'm when I, when they see what I'm doing, they um they do accept it. For example, there's um one uh, adamant and militant atheist who um, I found out was going to review the book, and I'm like, oh god, he's going to rip it apart, he'll shred it, yeah. But then when he actually read the book, he was he wrote a positive review, and he um said that um look, I'm not into Jesus like Tom is, but I see what he's saying here. And these values that he's surfacing and promoting through the figure of Jesus are good values that all um, humanists and people of good faith would want to promote and engage with. So, yeah, it's a it's a good contribution. So I was pleased by that. But the people who um, have been most displeased would be sort of the fundamentalist Christians. Yeah. And they've thought that... Um, that the book was either uh, dangerous. I was listening to a um, conservative Christian radio show mm. where they were talking about it, and I, I just started laughing. Their, yeah. their terms were so over the top. They used words like cancer and poison wow. to, uh, to describe the book. And then there are others who um, you know, are good-hearted people who are trying to be open-minded, but they see what I'm doing as, as um, such an act of radical decontextualization. Yeah. They just can't. They just can't um, stick with it. Mm. They think Jesus is so profoundly religious, right, and such a part of the religious story that you cannot look at him in a secular way. Mm-hmm. That you're and sort so of watering down or taming Jesus, yeah, or just doing something that is incomprehensible, right, and makes no sense. And I've come to see and what they're saying. Um, I understand it. For me, it's just natural. It's not a big deal to separate Jesus from religion and look at him in a secular way and yeah. not really worry about the religious stuff. But I've come to see that for some people, it is a little bit too much to ask of them. Right. And so be it. You know, I'm trying to practice uh, Jesus-style non-defensiveness when it right. comes to critics of the book. So uh, I, I understand where they're coming from. They can have their say. Everybody can have their say. It's fine. I have some friends who are pastors and Jesus followers, and I know right away that that a, a couple of them would absolutely love this book and what you're doing, and a couple of them would fall on that other side and call you an absolute agent of Satan, and they would think that <laughs> what you were doing, uh, and we have them here now. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I thought, uh, no, um, I, I, I think they would think um, what you were doing is exactly what you said, that you were somehow... Uh, taming Jesus. They they don't like liberal Jesus. My conservative Christian friends always say, you know, we hate your liberal mamby-pamby Jesus. Jesus is a divider. Jesus is going to come to to throw people into hell. Jesus, like, it's a, they have a very different, and, and again, uh, th- this conversation isn't, you know, let's sit here and bash those people who aren't even here to, to defend themselves. But I'm interested in this because I hadn't even thought about those on the sort of far left uh, that, that might have a, a difficult time with the book. But but having to sort of deal with this figure who, um, you know, I, I, unless you know something I don't, I mean, you're there at Yale, there's not even, uh, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's not even full consensus that, that we're dealing with an historical figure here. So the primary texts that we're interacting with this person through are the gospel narratives. Um, yeah, and, well, some people have brought that up with me, too, and that's been um, one source of criticism of uh-huh. what I'm doing. Interesting. And, well, how um, do you respond to that? I don't know if it's a criticism from my standpoint. It doesn't matter if it's. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. This will sound just 
like crazy pragmatic to you, but it doesn't matter whether the stuff is factually true or not. I couldn't agree more, actually. <laughs> yeah. Because the wisdom is still wise right. and the inspiration is still inspiring and the insights are still insightful and um, we can still benefit from these things tremendously. Now, let me back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I used to be totally fascinated by the quest for the historical Jesus. Sure. I even went to the Jesus seminar to a Jesus seminar event one time. Oh, I was going to ask you about that, Marcus and Borg and that whole Red thing. Law. And and I knew Marcus Borg when I lived in Portland. Yeah. And, um, went I'm sorry that he's now the late Marcus Borg mm. because I really liked him and yeah. um, read a lot of his books. And so I'm into the quest for the historical Jesus, but not for my new book in Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. I'm engaging with what you might call the face value Jesus. Yeah. The Jesus who says and does stuff on the pages of the news of the new testament and it doesn't matter whether they're journalistically accurate what when, matters is what we can learn from them when i was a, when i was in seminary we had a rabbi come in our, our faculty member brought a rabbi and i was in christian uh, a fundamentalist evangelical christian seminary and he brought a rabbi friend of his in to give his take on pauline theology to us and the guy stood up and laid out his understanding of pauline theology Christian theology in a way that blew our socks off. None of us in the class, especially at that time when we were all undergrads, um, so this is the undergrad program, excuse me, not in seminary, uh, had had, had a, a presentation of Pauline theology presented to us in anything remotely resembling that level of understanding and complexity. And this was from a rabbi, and he wasn't a Jew for Jesus. Uh, and the first question was, you know, was, did he believe in Jesus? And he said, no, right? And then the second question was, after he had laid out his presentation, was how do you understand this stuff so well? You know what I mean? Like, we were shocked mm. that a non-believer, he was a rabbi, <laughs> but he wasn't a Christian. And so we were all blown away that somebody from outside of our community would have such a clear, under, such a, a monumentally clear understanding of these texts. And um, and, and what he, you know, he talked about how the fact that he understood Paul as a rabbi and his understanding of Messiah, that he just didn't think Jesus was Messiah. Um, but I would add to that that sometimes having a little space, sometimes not having to defend these texts and not having the burden um, of needing to believe in things like inspiration and inerrancy and all of the kinds of things that go along with that really frees you to to have a, a, a simpler relationship with the text that I think can reveal some fundamental truths that I think even believers would, would benefit from. I, I don't think, I think even Christ followers who are not secular could learn some things from this book about their own understanding of, of the person they follow in a, in a spiritual context. Yeah, that's my hope. I think you used the word uh, burden. Yeah. And I've been um, completely unburdened by these things that mm. may vex a Christian theologian. Yeah. And I write about this in the, at the end of the book when I reflect on who Jesus can be to us as secular people today. Mm. And um, I talk about this radical freedom that we have. I mean, we're not trying, as secular people who might be into Jesus, um, we're not looking for the approval of any church. So, and we can't really be heretics because we're not within church confines. We have this radical freedom to um, do and believe what we will when it comes to this figure mm. of Jesus. We're not mm. looking for anybody's approval. Right. And nobody can really stop us when you look at it pragmatically. Right. And why would they want to or right. how could they? I mean, it would be absurd. Imagine it. Somebody's like, oh, Tom, you're becoming um, a more generous yeah. <laughs> person who um, is able to better see the humanity in everybody right. and contribute more to your community and help others and yourself find more 
um, uh, selfless ways of living and yeah. finding more meaning in life. But you know what? You don't believe in Jesus the right way, so you have to stop. Hmm. I mean, that's absurd. Right. And so uh, what I've been saying in some of these um, interviews I've been doing and some of these talks when people ask me about these things, yeah, I say that there is this radical freedom. And I don't have to worry about things like heresy and theology and all that. There are definitely other problems with what I'm doing, but that's not the problem. But that's problem. not one of them. And ironically, no, the problem, that's, a, that's another Jesus uh, attitude. I'm sorry, you were going to say the problem is what? Well, yeah, the problem is, is actually an age-old one, and that is that it's really hard to follow Jesus. Hmm. It's hard to do, and, isn't it? Especially in it could evening easily, traffic. <laughs> <laughs> right, and um, especially if you're not part of some kind of a community. I mean, Oh, good point. For all their flaws, churches are the best places probably for following Jesus. Mm -hmm. For some of us, that's not going to work because there's a whole lot of God belief that goes with it. Right, right. That goes with it, and we're not able to muster that. The ecclesia, right? People and can so the can problem is for that, each other. Yeah. The problem isn't that we're heretics. It's, it's that our Jesus following, if we say we're going to be secular Jesus followers, mm. this following could be as thin and light as a piece of paper. It could be so trivial. It could easily fade away, and we could just ditch it whenever the going gets tough. And that's why I feel fortunate that I'm part of um, this ethical community where we're having these conversations and thinking hard about our lives, being intentional about our ethics, because I don't think that I'd get very far without those things or without other sources and practices and structures and so forth. See, this is fascinating to me. And are you, know, are you familiar with the work of Stephen Prothero? Yeah, I've read a couple of his books. Yeah, he does. Uh, I think he's at he was at Boston University, and he wrote a book called Religious Literacy. That the one that I read. I know he's written some other ones. He's got more recent ones too. But um, I'm fascinated in this idea in how many Americans are, are have such a low literacy of of religious faith. And I think the reason that is important is for what you're talking about now. And especially you mentioned the Trump age earlier. Especially you know as we have this this feel at least on things like social media that people are, are sort of the chasm between people is growing and our terminology is becoming more fierce and intolerant with one another. And, and as we understand one another um, less, the, the ability to caricaturize and, and, and respond to versions of one another that are, that are built on this, this fear, this fear and anger that we were talking about in the beginning of our conversation grows and I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit to that, because what I think, you know, I would love to, you know, we were talking about Bill Maher before, um, you know, when you watch his movie Religious, which is also, you know, 10 years or, or more old now, it's him driving around to truck stops and other places trying to find people who claim to have religious faith and then completely trying to overwhelm them uh, in a quick kind of, you know, flashy, you know, professional comedian kind of way. And, and that's entertaining, but it's not very useful. What I would rather see is folks like you and Prothero and others, you know, um, on his show to have a real conversation about religion in America and, and secularism in America and how people can use these um, books like yours uh, to, to really build bridges of understanding to one another. I think now more than ever, this is important. I mean, do, do you see where I'm going with that? I do. And um, when we were talking about examples from my work about yeah. way, uh, ways in which the Jesus example, the Jesus wisdom could be transformative. What I didn't mention, I don't think, is that one of my chapters in the book is about our broken politics. Mm, go ahead. No, and you haven't like, mentioned that. 
so in this chapter, I take one of the most famous Jesus teachings, namely love your enemy, yeah. and try to apply that to what's going on in our wow. politics. Yeah, not so well. <laughs> and um, I took this on more directly toward the end of the summer when um, I wrote a column for USA Today where I tried to apply this idea in the hardest way imaginable. I'm not sure I completely pulled it off in the piece, but I talked about what would it look like for um, us liberals and Hillary Clinton supporters to, quote, love Trump. Hmm. That's probably wow. the hardest application of that Jesus wisdom that I can think of. Well, my heart just skipped a little bit when you said that. That's powerful stuff. And so um, I think that that's actually what we need, even though it sounds crazy. It sounds incredibly hard to do, and I don't think that most of us are in the mood for this right now, especially, hmm. um, well, I was going to say especially liberals, but I don't think conservatives are either. Yeah. I mean, I'm almost like chicken to say this anymore, but at the same time, it's exactly what we need. Yeah. Now, when I say that, I want to be um, really clear. I think you already know this, but when we talk about love in this context, you know, it's not, a, it's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not some affection. It, right. It's a different kind of love right. that has to do with um, our regard for our fellow human beings, our commitment to them, our wanting the best for them, these kinds of things. Right. It's, Hey, strike up the band Boston. It's more than a feeling. Wow. You know, <laughs> feeling doesn't really have anything to do with it because we may feel contempt, but ethically we're called to somehow have some regard for these people. Well, it's an interesting... And so in the chapter, I try to explore what that might look like in practice, even when it seems really difficult. Hmm. And um, hopefully when the mood changes sufficiently, we can try to start going in that direction. But I do think it's really hard. This is probably one of those subject areas where I sound like I'm overly idealistic or naive or totally impractical. That's probably true, but it's also exactly what we need. The world has never suffered from radical love. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I, I wish I felt more hopeful about it happening in the near term or even the long term. It seems like we're going in just the opposite direction right now. But if we were really able to see the humanity in our political enemies and see that truly they're not our enemies, that could be transformative and we could start to make some progress. And um, I know that some people are probably thinking, no way, dude, these people are racists. Hmm. I'm not going to, quote, love these racists and these misogynistic assholes and all this kind of thing. Yeah. And so um, in that chapter and in my thinking, I try to show that there's a way to hate all of that and reject all of the bad ideas and the bad actions, yeah. bad behaviors, damaging patterns without hating the person. And so my, my pithy way of addressing this, and it actually relates to that uh, very familiar evangelical idea of um, hate the sin, love the sinner. I was just going to bring that up, but you I did. Say, yeah. And what I say is hate the hate, love the hater. Wow. You know, it's interesting, too, and genetics have shown us that, um, you know, the human family is exactly that, that everybody on this planet comes from the same two people. We've been able to determine that genetically. It didn't go down quite like the Bible says. They, they trace it to about 175,000 years ago in the Rift Valley in Africa. So the book of Genesis gets those components wrong. But the idea that everybody on the planet literally literally is connected to one another in a, in a genealogical human family is abundantly true. And so... Um, seeing one another as family um, is, can help can help stoke this thing. You brought up a couple of things in in, in that that I really th- in your last thing about um, Jesus and politics that that uh, I want to ask you about that can transition into to your other book, the Evangelicals You Don't Know. 
Um, do you know the book? Uh, do you know David Quo? Do you know that name? I know the name, yeah. Wasn't he in the Bush White House? Yeah, he was in the Bush White House. He wrote a book called Tempting Faith. He was part of that uh, faith-based initiatives office that Bush opened up. And he wrote a book called Tempting Faith, and he wrote about how he left that, that job disgusted at how much, according to him, the administration, not, not Bush himself, but the rest of the, you know, Cheney and several other folks in the administration, were, in Quo's words, using religion and using religious people to accomplish their political agenda. And so they would bring evangelical leaders into the White House and sort of lavish all this praise and friendship on them and then, you know, go to your church and get people to, to vote for these things. And then when the leaders would leave, they'd sit around and joke about, oh, that asshole, could you believe that guy and his stupid, you know, and kind of speak about these folks in really disparaging ways. This is according to Quo in his book. Um, yep, so yep. he, yeah, he left and I was really interested because I was interested in the ways the right wing were misusing Jesus and misusing faith and misusing the Bible to sort of accomplish a, a political agenda or an economic agenda or to help, you know, make people more intolerant of one another. Um, and, and we spoke to a little bit of that and you can maybe bring some of that up more, but what you brought up is a way that maybe the left, um, can, has misused or in a, in a more positive way can use the example in the figure of <coughs> Jesus to sort of transform our own understanding of our political relationships. And I think that's, that's really powerful. Yeah, it's such a shame that um, conservatives have sort of monopolized Christianity mm -hmm. and have monopolized Jesus. Um, I would never say that Jesus can only be seen in a liberal way. Yeah. I think that Jesus transcends our political labels. You know, I have people come up to me and say, oh, yeah, Jesus was a socialist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't deny that they're that you could see that in him or that there were socialistic tendencies. But I think all of our labels fail. Fail. I would agree. Trying to understand. They're just too specific. Yeah. And so I wouldn't say that Jesus only belongs to liberals, but I would say that it's a shame that conservatives have had a corner on that market. Yeah. And I think it's probably a, um, one reason why so many younger Americans have ditched religion. Yeah. I think you're right. And I wish that, I wish that liberal political people and movements would do more to um, build on and um, invoke the Jesus idea. Hopefully not in the inappropriate ways that um, the right wing have done it. Hopefully in inclusive and loving ways and um, you know positive ways. There are some examples that maybe that's starting. I'm thinking about William Barber and the Moral Mondays movement. Sojourners. Exactly. Yeah, those folks um, are really interesting. What would be really radical would be if um, secular people started invoking the wisdom of Jesus in secular ways. Yeah. Because then um, I think there's a lot there and it could be helpful. And I'm trying to get people to see that this, um, this wisdom is available and applicable wherever you are on the religious or non-religious spectrum. Hmm. But I think it might be a while till that happens. But at any rate, I would like to see more, at least a balance in terms of Jesus being invoked by um, liberals and conservatives. And it'll be interesting to see um, how much of um, sort of a Christian left, for lack of a better term, develops. There seems to be a lot of energy right now, and based on the materials that I receive as a journalist, a lot of activity by progressive religious organizations and Christian organizations to try to resist Trump and to try to um, mm -hmm. raise this compassionate Christian voice in a time that seems to be going in a very non-compassionate direction. I hope that becomes powerful. Yeah, when you go to your Amazon page, uh, it always says customers who bought your books also bought books by, and there's a lot of names there 
that people might recognize. One of them is Tony Campolo, the, the red letter Christian. Uh, and, and I don't know if you know Dr. Campolo's work, but he's a, a believer. Yeah, I'm Christian. familiar with Yep, I'm familiar with uh, with his work, and uh, much more conservative than you, but tends to and a believer, but tends to focus on the sort of Jesus example as well. Uh, in our last few minutes, I was I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the the evangelicals you don't know. Can you let our audience know what that book's about? Um, it came out in 2013, uh-huh. and it was about a group of people who I like to describe as the new evangelicals mm. in post-Christian America. Um, when I started out writing about religion and public life, Andy, I was really focused on the Christian right and all of the bad things they were doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I became aware of your work there and then with this book. And so it's amazing. Go, go ahead. And um, at the same time, I was finishing up a master's program at Penn and my professor there was really getting on me. He accused me of having an anti-evangelical bias. Mm. And so I was kind of um, an evangelical hater. Mm, wow. And the stuff that I wrote was valid. I mean, I still stand by it. I mean, the misuse of God in politics. Sure. And all that stuff. But um, as time went on and um, my being in Portland was a big factor in this and people like Dan Merchant were big factors. As time went on, I started to see a more – a different side of evangelicalism and a different Mm. kind of evangelical. And I started following that trail and I wrote a series of columns about what they were doing and the meaning that it would have for our politics and our culture. And um, it became sort of a subspecialty of mine. And then I – decided that it would all add up to be a, to be a good book hmm. and a book that needed to be written. So I went ahead with that. And um, I'm glad I did, but it's frustrating now because even, even back in um, 2011, 2012, 2013, when I was working on the book and when it came out, these um, more progressive, more open, newer evangelicals were obscured by the evangelicals who were getting all the media attention. Right, right. Even though a fairly large percentage um, had voted for Obama in 08, mm-hmm. but you know what's happened since then? I feel like they've been even more obscured because um, all we hear about is the 81% of evangelicals who voted for Trump. Right, right. And, um, and also there's the fact that um, I really fear that in the um, three or four years that have happened, that have passed since that book came out, a lot of the, quote, new evangelicals have become ex-evangelicals, oh, at least wow. in terms of how they identify and so my hope that um, the media and the public would develop a more complex and generous understanding of evangelicals, mm-hmm. I don't think that hope has been realized in any way. And it's kind of a hard sell right now, wow. especially because of this recent election. And I think it's shameful that so many evangelicals um, strongly supported Trump after we heard for many years that character mattered so much. Right. And who they were going to support for a public office and who they were going to get behind. And so I think that yeah, in the Clinton years, it was very important to them. Character matters was a bumper sticker in the Clinton era that a lot of my evangelical friends had. Yeah, of course. Not that there was a lot of credibility left, but whatever credibility was left, I Mm -hmm. think, has been shattered. Shattered by this. That being said, there's still it's still true that there are um, many evangelicals who don't fit that negative stereotype, and I know it's painful for them to be subjected to that. And so I wanted to tell their story, and I'm and I'm glad that I did. And I think they um they contribute a lot to their communities, and to what's happening, e- despite what's happened with the Trump phenomenon. There are still evangelicals out there fighting for social justice and humane immigration policies, mm. and humane treatment of sexual minorities, 
And I'm happy that that they're there and they deserve to be acknowledged. There's a network of churches that have signed on to be sanctuary spaces for for immigrants and stuff. There's a lot of there's a lot of that stuff going on. And what I love about the book, and as I said, I became aware of you in Dan's movie, um, and then in your writing for with USA Today and other places, and then with this with that book. Um, haven't read the new one yet. Uh, but what I actually love about it is exactly what you said in the beginning of my question. You had written, it kind of like you became known for being a person who wrote these pieces that were <laughs> critical of, of um, you know, evangelicalism or at least how it was being used by certain factions of the far right. And so the fact that you were a person that had already shown your, you know, your mettle to, to write critical pieces about even, about the sort of misuse or overuse or extension of, of political ties into certain evangelical threads, I think just raised your credibility when you turn to now say something positive about it. You know what I mean? Because you'd already shown that you were able to criticize it in significant ways. And so writing something yeah, that Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Also something that, 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 and what fascinated me about this book, and, and, you know, a lot of the, you got a lot of positive press for this, and people talked about how you know, you were challenging a lot of misconceptions that people have about these figures, about these people in these movements. And um, one quote I read said that you were you were really pointing to something new and complex and subtle that was going on. So I wonder, you know, if you can speak to that a little bit. And do you think that's entirely died out? Like what what new and complex and subtle thing did you see going on with these new evangelicals? The fact that they did not fit the um, political stereotypes and that to really to use really simple terms, they were doing a lot of good. Yeah. And it, when you were around them, you could see that they were good people yeah. with good hearts. Mm-hmm. And you could see too the sincerity of their beliefs that um, that that Jesus really mattered to them and that God was real to them. And even though I didn't share those beliefs, I could see that it mattered a lot to them. And I felt like for me to be a good person, I had to honor that. I mm-hmm. had to honor that in them. And for me to be a fair-minded journalist, I had to tell that story as well as the other stories that came more easily to me, which were the negative ones. I think what I'm most proud of in that work is that I was um, willing to criticize my own side and challenge my own side. Yeah, yeah. Which is, um, which can be a slightly unnerving thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the evangelicals, you don't know. I went to um, a place that many would see as the sort of the home base of the enemy. I made this um, trip to focus on the family. Oh, wow. Did, did you Jimmy do a Dobson, sit down so, yeah. with to do a sit down with uh, Jim Daly who had replaced James yeah, Dobson. Yeah. And um it wasn't to grill him with hard questions even though I did ask him some hard questions, mm-hmm. but it was also to say some things to him that were sort of confessional about ways in which he and his organization had been unfairly caricatured by my side of the argument. Wow. And you know, I sort of apologized for that. And I felt that was um a good thing to do. And I felt it was good material for the book and I'm glad I did it. I was really worried I was going to be, um, raked over the coals for doing that too. And, Mm -hmm. um, some people did do that. They thought that what I did was unforgivable because focus on the family was the enemy. Right. And at that point they still didn't support gay marriage. They still don't support it. Right. Right. And if you don't support gay marriage, you are the enemy. And so I was consorting with the enemy and strengthening the enemy. I mean, maybe I'd feel the same way if, if I was gay and I'd been abused by right-wing Christians. Sure, sure. And so, you know, I accept the hit. But I think there's something valuable in, in being willing to criticize ourselves and be mm-hmm. vulnerable and to criticize our own side. Yeah. And hopefully I um, showed that in a, in a helpful way with that book. And I would, the idealist in me hopes that eventually that kind of thing catches on. 
we ratchet down the di- the, the the hate dialogue and, and the, it's this emphasis of what divides us. It's what I really appreciate about the work you're doing and, and what, you know, a guy like Dan Merchant did as well with his film. But, you know, with, with this book and, you know, with both books really, but with the evangelicals you don't know, um, I found that message to be, to be a, I mean, a, a really important one. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, I have a friend um, who we had on the show recently, a guy named John Voles, who's a pastor in California, and he was also in Jackson, Michigan for a while, and he's exactly one of these kind of people. Um, he's a guy that just gets up every morning and he just says, where, where is God doing work and how do I get involved in it? And it's, and it's not so much about winning people over <laughs> to the church. I mean, sure, that's what he would like, and he would like people to, to know this Jesus that he knows, but you know, they would just go, you know, they found um, an organization that worked with kids in the area um, who had experienced some kind of trauma and the kids had written poems about it. This was not a, not a religious organization. This is at like one of the schools. And he got a group of musicians together to write songs to put music to the poems. And then they like brought the whole town together and performed these kids' poems about the trauma. Like a, a kid would have a parent in jail for a drug addiction or, you know, committed a crime or something. And you know, third and fourth graders, and they would do these sort of transformative events for the community just because, like not, you didn't even have to come to the church to do it. They would just go to a coffee shop or a bar. He instituted like, um, you know, doing uh, music hours at local bars and stuff and took a lot of shit from folks that were like, Christians shouldn't be at the bar, you know, yada, yada. But I really see him as one of the very people you're talking about. And it's a whole different ball game when you get around these people. They, they really do speak to the kind of thing you're talking about, this kind of new and complex and subtle thing going on. The guy's just bubbling over with a kind of um, passion to serve people that that's very difficult to, to say not to, to be against. I agree. It's, it's very disarming. It can be inspiring. You know, you're lucky to be in Portland because I found that Portland is a real epicenter Hmm. for that kind of evangelical voice and that kind of evangelical presence. And it's interesting because um, Portland is also a very unchurched city. Yes. So somebody might think, well, you know, secular Portland, liberal Portland, that would be the last place right. where evangelicals would uh, be at their best. But I actually think the two things go together. I think it's way more than a coincidence that secular Portland is also a site of evangelical excellence and innovation. Fascinating. And uh, I think that evangelicals have to be at the top of their game in a place like Portland, unlike somebody that, uh, someplace that's deep in the uh, Bible Belt. Hmm. They have to come up with something um, new and credible and relatable that goes well beyond sort of Christian subculture. And so I think that that kind of context is really good for Christians and good for Christianity. And that's often when Christianity is at its best, when it's in a culturally non-dominant position. Well, well said. Well, as we wrap up here, just two questions for you, really. Um, wh- what are you working on now? Um, you know, what's on, the, what's on the horizon? You're doing this work at Yale, and, and what, what are you guys working on there? But so you, you mentioned the Yale humanist community. Yep, I'm very involved in the um, Yale humanist community, which um, is only about three or four years old. Great. It's um, emblematic of what's happening around the country with these humanist chaplaincies popping up yeah. at more and more uh, universities and uh, in more and more communities. Congratulations. Yep. With my writing, I'm um, trying to become more of a voice within humanism and trying to further this shift toward a positive articulation of secular lives. Hmm. Um, It's fascinating to be at Yale Divinity School, which is my main job. Yeah. And um, as I mentioned earlier, a place that represents many good things about Christianity. Obviously, you know, being at Yale, it's a site of academic and intellectual excellence. 
most of the students and faculty here are Christians, and right. um, it's a, it's a pleasure to be um, to be around them and see their faith practice and the kind of warm community. I really think that if um, this is how Christianity was uniformly, it wouldn't be going through the the decline that it has. Fascinating, because. Um, they really do a good job of it here. And, and, you know, I'm part of the school. I'm not part of their faith practice, but right. it's, um, it's a really good place to be. And it's encouraging to see this form of Christianity at its best. But like, um, like all seminaries and like all religious uh, institutions and religiously affiliated institutions, there are challenges. People here know that the demographics are shifting and the generally mainline churches that the school serves are shrinking. And there are fewer pastor jobs for, the people who graduate from here. So wow. it's also it's also a challenging time for um, Christian uh, divinity schools, even those that have the good fortune of being at schools like Yale. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up here, you know, I mentioned that you wrote for USA Today because that's where I first became aware of your work. And then, like I said, Dan's movie and then, and then your books. But you've also written for ESPN, The Nation, uh, Christianity Today. You've done work with Air America. Um, I wonder, how have you been received on Fox and Friends? I keep mentioning I'd love to see you on Bill Maher. How, how have your appearances gone over on the Fox now? I was on I was on twice when my first book came out, which was Onward Christian Athletes. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that with nine, ESPN. They were interested, they were interested in the um, nexus between um, religion and sports, mm-hmm. which is always so conspicuous yeah. when you're watching sports. So I was a little bit nervous about going on with Fox because uh-huh. – you know, the book wasn't um, – it wasn't like pro-Christianity. It wasn't in any way snarky or negative. Right. But I had a critique of what was going on. And so I thought they were going to rake me over the coals like, what do you have against these wonderful Christian wholesome athletes? It was yeah. really mild. And they just asked me to um, talk about how big-time sports had become so conspicuously religious and why this was happening and so it was surprisingly innocuous. Was it and like was an anti-Tim Tebow book or what <laughs> What was the gist? It was basically um, sort of a behind-the-scenes look at why uh, big-time sports had become so Christianized. Okay. It explained um, how evangelical ministry organizations had been operating behind the scenes for decades, mm. trying to turn sports into um, almost a marketing vehicle yeah, yeah. for their uh, evangelism. But uh, then I did some investigative journalism for the book and showed how most of these ministry organizations had strong ties to the Christian right and how they had an agenda that was anti-gay and yeah, anti women yeah. and so forth and that didn't address the real moral problems in sports. Right. So there was definitely a, a, a critique. But, um, you know, in this like three-minute <laughs> session on Fox and Friends, they didn't have time to get into that, so... I'm one of the few liberals who went on Fox News twice and had a pleasant Live to tell about it, yeah. It'd be great to do an expose of that John 316 guy that was at all the football games in the 70s and 80s. I know. <laughs> Figure out what that guy's problem was. Well, hey, Tom, thank you so much for speaking with us, man. Is there anything you want to add or say to our, our listeners as we, as we close up shop here? Just want to say thank you, Andy. It's been a delight talking with you. Thanks for the good work you do. Oh, this is fantastic. You know, I mean, we are in a time, um, you know, I think it's always, it always feels like uh, perilous and stressful times. But, uh, but as, uh, after this last election cycle, um, I just couldn't see a more uh, pertinent time for your work to exist. Being a uniter, being a person who really, whose work has, has been devoted to, to building bridges between people of these disparate and often 
competing in hostile ideologies to, to do the work you're doing now for both people on the quote-unquote left and right. Uh, I just think everybody can learn from your work and everybody can take a step towards each other uh, in our common humanity and in that common quest for transcendence and purpose that we started the show talking about. So thank you so much for, for the work you do. Well, I feel very encouraged by what you just said. Thank you very much, Andy. Absolutely. Folks, you're listening to On the Block Radio. Our guest is Tom Crattenmaker. Get yourself over to our site so you can get links over to his work, uh, the new book, Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, uh, the previous works, Onward Christian Athletes, and the Evangelicals You Don't Know. No, don't Know About? The you don't Evangelicals, know. Yeah, you, evangelicals don't know. you Don't Know. You Don't Know. Right. Uh, Tom, thanks for being here, man. We really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Have and a good we, night. And we will see you folks on the other side.
Oh, you beautiful kitty kitties. Oh, look at you out there. Creators of art, history, thought. New minds looking at this world and our lives. Beautiful, beautiful. Like a bolt of lightning in your head. It keeps trying to tell you to remember that the world is a paper thin veil over the truth. Watching her future through the red lined windows, rests her arms on the round of her belly. I wonder if the worry in her hands and the joy in her heart will ever be one and the same. Yeah, one and the same.
Apocalypse. You learn 